0: I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway
0: to the evil worlds beyond.
1: Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my
2: dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is that satrap of the East, Jeff Goad. Well, hello there, friends. And this week, we're especially honored to have special guest Jason Hobbs of Hobbs & Friends fame and Random Street. Hello, Jason.
2: Hey, Hoy. Thanks for having me.
0: Such a pleasure. And this week, we're reading Fred Saberhagen's The Broken Lands. Um, Anything you want to say about that, Jeff? Uh, yeah, this is episode 39. I'm excited to be reading oh, yeah, this. yeah, there we and
1: go. <laughs> it's, it's fun having uh, Mr. Jason Hobbs here, but uh, no, I, I sounds like you've got it under control, buddy.
0: There we go. So, um, <laughs> Jason, so tell us a little bit about your history with gaming, what brought you into it, and, you know, what was your introduction, and also how you can, kind of uh, came to the concept of Appendix N, if at any point.
2: So, I'm pretty old, and uh, I've... I've been on some podcasts and a lot of times we talk about this sort of thing on gaming podcasts. And so my story pretty much is starts in 1978 in, uh, Northern Illinois in the Midwest where I'm from. And about 15 cousins, boys and girls in my immediate family on just my dad's side. And, uh, I used to get together with my half brothers only at my grandmother's house, uh, because, uh, their mother did not want to bring them all the way to my house. And so this place in my grandma's house in Amboy, the Amboy Dukes, right, was uh, in the middle. And a bunch of us, my brothers and I would go to my grandma's house and stay for the week during the summer or whatever. We hung out around there a lot. And right next door was some of our older cousins. And uh, we used to love going over there because my grandma's house didn't, uh, didn't have running water. So, <laughs> you know, it was an outdoor toilet. Um, <laughs> so, and they had running water at my cousin's house. And, um, we would spend as much time as possible over there. And at one point, one of my oldest cousins, boyfriends brought, started like playing Dungeons and Dragons. And it was, uh, I found out now it was the Holmes edition. So that's what I started with my, with my older cousins. Um, uh, I was about eight years old, I think. I mean, how do you really know? Uh, and almost right after that, I really fell in uh, love with the idea of, of being able to just use, you know, your imagination to go places other than where you are. And so I was an avid reader at a young age. I didn't realize that some of the books I thought was an appendix N isn't. Uh, but, uh, Jeff, let me know that when I mentioned something a couple of weeks ago, I don't remember what book it was that I said, but I was going to say, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember either, but you're like, this isn't actually, and here's the list that we're using. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh I would say what is the well, Terran Wanderer? That doesn't sound anything like me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like you. Was it was it Wizard of Earthsea?
1: No. Uh, no <laughs> Oh actually we yeah, we no. get that a lot. We get a lot right. of people who seem to think Ursula K. Le Guin is in the yes? list, but yeah. she definitely is. Yeah, yeah I yeah.
2: would think that. I would say like yeah. the Terran Wanderer books, I think I kind of remember. Sure. sure. The Alexander books. Yeah. Are those yeah. is that Pradane cycle? Is that what that is? Or what yep. is that?
0: Yep. Okay. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yep. Awesome.
2: I would say that's probably my initial ones, and I've probably I mean, I've read Vance and Moorcock and a lot of a lot of stuff. I'd read Fred Saberhagen's uh swords books, but I had not read this before.
1: Now like Vance and Moorcock, were you reading them back in the seventies and eighties, or was this no. kind of more with the OSR revival?
2: More with the more in the past uh you know, five years, ten years or something like that. Like I, I yeah. read uh Liber back then or Lieber, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Liber. But uh yeah, I did not really read Moorcock or Vance then. Uh, but mm-hmm. I have read all those since then, and I read Howard in that in that era. So mm-hmm.
0: right, right. We've noticed a pretty—I uh, won't say it's uh, the majority, but it seems like a, f- a fair number of the people on our podcast have come through D D through Holmes, which is kind yeah. of interesting. Uh, um, like disproportionately, I would say almost like a third, or even to, up to a half, was that was their introduction.
2: Uh, uh, especially lately,
0: it seems like you've got a
1: string, yeah. especially of people who started on uh, on on Holmes.
2: Yeah. I was going to say they probably didn't know what the edition was and they just made that up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. that's, 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 all, all the cool kids started with Holmes. <laughs>
0: there you go. And um, did you um, – obviously said that you weren't aware that some books that you thought were on Appendix N, but did you become aware of Appendix N as a specific concept or were you just reading fantasy generally you know, through your youth and then only more recently did you become aware of –
2: well, I mean, I I still have the original DMG that we used from then, uh, and I mm-hmm. remember looking at it, but I've never read the thing cover to cover and didn't know exactly what an appendix one and was for quite a while. So I would say I just read in general, mm-hmm. but I mean, I read a ton of stuff, right, <clears throat> all over the place. So,
0: right, right. And like you, I'd read the, uh, swords, swords children, but I had not read this book. So that's actually pretty interesting to, you know, maybe I have very vague memories and I know it's actually part of the same continuity. And then maybe at some point later on in this project, we'll connect those. Yeah. I did
2: together. not know it was part of the same continuity until I told someone that I was reading it and why. Cause the first thing I did is I got it on my, uh, my Kindle or, and, uh, read it. And then I ordered the actual book so I could have a hard copy to smell. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Speaking of that, which copy are you reading? Uh, it's the
2: Windham with the uh-huh. uh, with like the giant tank with the dude with the smoke coming off of his sword. I just looked this nice. up. His uh, the art is by what Melvin or Melvin Melvin Grant. So
0: Melvin Grant. That's that's the uh, British copy. Then. Is that
2: what it is? The seventy eight version yeah, or something like yeah, that?
0: Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. How about you, Jeff? Well, I've
1: got the the nineteen sixty eight paperback. Uh, it's from Ace Books, and it's got this cover by Richard Powers, and it's cool. It's this really kind of like psychedelic painting of what is clearly the elephant, and you see some of the fly the 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 silent ones, the 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 bird people floated, flying around. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a really pretty cool cover. I'm digging it.
0: Right, right. It looks like the, one of the satraps is there in sort of the lower corner there, the lower left corner. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah, in the tower. Any uh, cool text on the back of your copy, Jason, or on top of your co- back of your copy, Jeff?
2: Yeah, it's cool text. I mean, do you want me? To, it's kind of long. Yeah. Do you want me to read it?
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, go ahead.
2: The passing of thousands of years had left the planet Earth a series of broken lands, a mutated world of distant alien empires and near at hand rapacious satraps. The common people hunted by the great lords, harried by the evil killer reptiles, were sustained by one last legend, that someday one would come who would ride the elephant and thereby bring back the golden age.
0: Ooh. Good, good. I like it. On, uh, it's similar but not exactly identical to the copy that's on the back of the Ace uh, ace cover and i like the ace the cover puts it ride the elephant in quotes which sounds a little bit obscene <laughs> <laughs> hey you want to ride the elephant <laughs> The elephant. yeah i so that's the copy i read i also have a copy of empire of the east which is all three books collected together with this really nice enric cover mm-hmm. and i just took a quick look inside i did notice that he did change some of the passages i don't know how much of a rewrite he did or if he just you know felt like he wanted to clean up some phrases. In there. So that'll be interesting if I ever get a chance to do a comparative reread. Nice. And I'm
1: ready for our Hygaxian word of the day if you guys are. Absolutely. All right. So this is a bit of a throwback to the last episode Helix. Helix. So I was surprised because on our last episode, the word helix played a relatively big role in the story. And then in the very next book we read, Helix was there again. So I was like, we should really kind of officially embrace the word Helix here. So on page nine, it says, Halfway up the first long Helix of the Stair, he stopped, turning back his head and asked, What make you of that speech the ancient blessed me with before he died? So in this case, Helix is kind of describing the staircase, but the official definition is, an object having a three-dimensional shape like that of a wire wound uniformly in a single layer around a cylinder or cone as in a corkscrew or a spiral staircase. So that's a helix.
2: Nice. Hey, I go. got a question.
0: You got a candidate? Yeah, yeah sure. I, I do
2: have a candidate. In fact, uh, um, first of all, I want to know why you call it high Gaxian instead of like the full term high I
1: think th- what happened was in an earlier episode, I just kind of slipped and accidentally said high Gaxian instead of high guy but we were both just kind of tickled by it. So we ah, kept it.
2: Okay. Yeah. I like it. I don't know <laughs> if that happened on an episode that you talked about it. Cause I didn't have it listened to every episode, but.
1: I think it was like on the, f- like maybe second episode or something <laughs> that I, I said high Gaxian. And then I was just kind of like, all right, I'll just roll with this. I'm kind of digging into high Gaxian. Yeah.
2: I kind of liked it yep. too, but I was like, when I first heard it, I was like, I don't think that's right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's canon on this podcast. I, well, I like it. Right, I, I right. think it should be. Right. Uh, but
0: I you actually uh, getting things getting things wrong on the internet is uh, our business. That's I think the podcasting <laughs> business. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm any example. <laughs> so, uh,
2: I thought it was interesting that I didn't find a lot of words like that in this book. And I feel like he must've almost tried to do that on purpose because in, in the late mm-hmm. 60s, they were writing well more in like a lot of these other authors I felt like are doing a lot of, you know, more obscure and heavy handed mm-hmm. words. Uh, but I like the word betimes.
1: Oh, yeah. Batimes. So Ooh, yeah, before
2: good. the usual or expected time early. So in my book, it's on uh, page 52. The leather wings are up betimes, said Thomas quietly, nodding straight ahead. So I thought that was an interesting word because I don't know if I'd ever really even seen it before.
0: Yeah, that is. I like that. Actually, you point out an interesting thing in terms of uh, Saberhagen's prose. And I wonder if it's because of his background, both as sort of a technical writer and then he was a a editor for the Encyclopedia Britannica for a while. So that he wanted to be sort of very clear and really help you to be able to visualize what was going on. I'm not sure. And not necessarily. Yeah. I'm not to, yeah. sure.
2: I read, I actually read a, a, um, an article about this, that the guy, I don't remember. It was black gate. I think who like does book reviews. He said he thought it was mm-hmm. purposely done because in that time, so many people were doing it the other way. And since this was supposed to be earth, even in the far flung future, yeah. he thought it would be more accurate if they did speak uh, this kind of a, just a more standard English.
0: That sounds like that might be been uh Fletcher of Riedenberg, who's been on this podcast oh, nice. before. So yeah. Yeah. Um, we, have, we can have a, uh, you know, a tag team match sometime one of these days on our podcast. Get all our hosts on. Just tell us how – they can all tell us how we're wrong about everything. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think Doug Kovacs has been wanting to do that on Spellburn for a long time. <laughs> but, um, okay, great. So let's go on into the library and talk about what we think about the book itself. Uh, so starting with our host, Mr. Jason Hobbs here, what did you think of The Broken Lands?
2: A lot of times I find these books that are written in this era that aren't by the more prosy people. They feel almost clinical to me, like mostly science fiction, I guess, uh, when you talk about like Arthur C. Clark or uh, some of those guys. And this book has that feel because of the way it's written. Uh, I actually enjoyed it more than I expected to uh, because of that. And I mean, it's very cliched, the whole evil, big evil empire, young guy finds himself and defeats it or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, I still found it interesting. To me, it was like the first 100 pages or even more than that, maybe. There's only like 180 pages in my book, but we're really kind of slow in building. And then all the stuff that happened in like the last 80 pages was 10 times as much as the earlier pages. So I just thought that was an mm-hmm. interesting pacing choice, I guess. I, I liked it though. Yeah. How about you, Hoy?
0: Um, I definitely liked it a lot more than I was expecting because I have very vague um recollections of the previous Saberhagen that I'd read. And so, again, I remember, as, as you say, his prose being kind of clinical, um, might be a little bit strong, but not not particularly or, or uh, embellished. And so definitely not a stylist. Um, but here I think he was very effective at terms of getting you to picture what was going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Um, in particular, I found that the whole sequence with Thomas trying to evade the patrol in the desert was really tense. Um, and, and, maybe if we talk about in gaming terms later on, it was definitely an example of, you know, attempting to hide in shadows, but with maybe only like a, you know, forty forty three 43% chance. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, I liked a lot of that. I liked, um, I liked that they would poke through before you get explicitly start to understand that this is our earth in the far future, you're still using a few phrases that sort of tip you off. Like he's using the word kilometer a lot. He never uses the word miles or far, you know, um, leads or anything like that. So it's interesting to see those little, you know, things pop in there and you're like, Oh, what's going on here? You know? Um, and I also really, really liked the characterization of all the bad guys. The fact that there's sort of like a sort of faction play going on in there with what's going on with the satrap and in his palace and with the wizards and, you know, the other satrap and his daughter who's, you know, got her own agenda. Mm -hmm. So,
1: yeah, it really is kind of a rich tapestry of characters. I I really enjoyed the story. Uh it really kind of feels like proto Game of Thrones to me. Um not mm-hmm. necessarily in the the scope of it, but definitely in kind of the gritty style of it. Um you know, we, we've got a lot of um kind of humans dealing with a kind of a more realistic version of the kind of hellscape that's created by totalitarianism in kind of a more um, maybe low-tech environment um, you know just from the very beginning when Rolf is out farming or whatever it is he's doing I don't recall and he sees his home is like being attacked by one of those one of those um, crazy lizard bird things that are serving the evil Empire, so he runs over and he discovers that like his whole family has been slaughtered. Um, it was really, yeah. I thought, pretty gruesome. And
0: yeah, yeah. Actually,
1: gonna... there's one particular um, section that I, I pointed out where it says, "Rolf found himself back in the clearing, averting his eyes from the nakedness of the thing that had once been his mother. He did not let himself think of how her clothes had been taken from her or why, though those were also things that he knew." the men from the castle, the soldiers, the invaders, the East, like it's, it goes for Mm. it.
2: Yeah. Uh I thought that whole section of how he dealt with it felt kind of really raw. And uh, he Mm -hmm. really kind of did a good job of emotionally getting you engaged with what has happened without being super explicit either, you know? Yeah. And it kind of took some time and uh, he just kind of really made you feel that I think a lot better than in a lot of other books and i think that's part of the reason that it's yeah. such a cool book
0: yeah
1: yeah it doesn't dance yeah, around I- the kind of darker sides of the uh, kind of humanity but nor does it really seem to kind of like revel in it either no that's it a-
0: mm-hmm. it's definitely not um you know fiction or whatever the term that they're using you know uh grim dark necessarily mm-hmm. um and i don't want to belabor the point i don't know that for example, that George Lucas ever read this, but you did mention it. It does, it does feel a little bit like the first Star Wars film, right? Like when Luke returns to and sees Aunt, uh, you know, Aunt Beru and uh, and Uncle Owen have been killed, and then, then has to go off on the quest into the desert, and the 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 um, the itinerant um, the itinerant uh, salesman turns out to be like a, a martial arts master, not on, like Obi Wan. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. So there's a little well, bit of that. It's not just Star
2: you know. Wars. There's a ton um, of books like that. Really, like the right. Conan movie. You know, his image right. gets destroyed. Sure. Yeah, Beastmaster. Right, right. Robin, Hood. I mean, Robin it's, Hood. it's kind of yeah. a classic tale. Right. Yeah.
0: Right, right. I mean, it's it's archetypal, but it just it's just something about the actual visual quality of this makes me think a little bit. Obviously, because you have this fusion of mysticism and technology, so therefore that's not too far from Star Wars, obviously. Yeah. And how um,
1: successful do you guys feel like the fusion of fantasy and science fiction was in this story?
0: I think, uh, generally quite, quite well. I think, um, you know, it's, it's plausible to me that because there's that mixture of like, well, is this person this, you know, when he's got the binoculars and he's like, oh, is this something super mystical? No, 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 no. It's like, look, look carefully. You can see that it's just really, really well it's made. It's a different you know? science, technology.
2: Um, is it because he was a farmer? Is that why technology seemed to come to him easier? And it was harder for him to do other things because he mentioned that you don't really necessarily see him having trouble with magic or anything. Uh, but he just uh, quite a few right. times it mentioned how he seemed to be prepared and uh, well, easily to grasp like some kind of savant or something with technology.
0: Right, right. And that's a little bit like like Luke, you know, being a natural shot, right? He's sitting inside the elephant and he's like, oh, this looks like a shovel handle. Let me pull with this. And let me play yeah. with this. Right. Um you know, and I think also Jeff to bring back to your earlier point too about this. You know, this. I mean, it's pretty explicit, right? The East, this mysterious inhuman East, right? And this is written in 1968, so you know, Cold yeah. War, you know, the Soviet Union, China. But on the flip side of it, equally well, again in 1968, the people in the swamps, the the, the free people, could just as easily be the Viet Cong fighting against. You know, because they're paddling in their little canoes, hiding under trees, oh. right, and, and in the, right, um, you know, hiding from this occupying alien force that is coming to their sure. country. Right. So
1: oh, that's an interesting perspective. So
0: like, I get right. So I give Saberhagen props for not doing like a one to one correlation in everything like, oh, this is clearly the United States and this is clearly China. Yeah. You know, And I mean, um, he also went but, into,
2: like you said, he makes uh, even Ekuman a very, you kind of know him, you know, he kind of, he tells you what he's about. You kind of delve into the mind of him, why he's doing the things. And even with Chup as well. Uh, what they, what they don't really do is say what happens in the East, you know, these guys go back to the East and they gain more nefarious powers, but you don't really know hardly anything about the East itself. Just these satraps that you meet.
1: Yeah. That, like right? at one point, the the main satrap, uh, Ekumon, he's got these two wizards employed with him, uh, Lud and Zarf. And I remember at first in the story being like, why don't Elslude and Zarf just take control? They've got all these like amazing, they're, like they're wizards and this is just some dude who somebody else's decide is in charge. But then later in the story, we see that like, oh, actually, this dude's been imbued with some major powers, uh, which far exceed what the wizards have. So it, I I thought it was kind of fun that it, it it set it up at first to where I was questioning it. And then by the end, I was like, oh, <laughs> I get it.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and I I think also Saberhagen is actually quite uh, adept, considering, again, the the length of this this book, as you pointed out, Jason, it's only 180 pages, that, um, you know, Ekumon we learn a lot about, the Chup, you know, Thomas, who's the other protagonist, um, even the little bits with, like, the soldier who's training Rolf for the gladiatorial match. He has a a personality. Yeah, he definitely does. uh, And and, and the, and the, the two birds. People, which they never explicitly say are owls, but that's how I kind of picture them like, like giant owls because, you know, they're flying at night. I, never, I never
2: did that until um, I read that article and they're like, and he's like, yeah, owl man. And I'm like, yeah. owls? What? I never thought of them like owls, you know? I just, <laughs> yeah.
0: like, I had like vultures or something in my head. I don't know why, but. <laughs> I guess I pictured the, the reptiles, the flying reptiles, were like vultures. And then, uh, but even though a couple of the reptiles, because they're kind of quasi intelligent, right? And there was like the reptiles are, are, are uh, have a little bit of personality on their own also. So was, it was definitely, um, he's very, again, you know, in a few sentences, you can really sketch out a character. And I
1: cool. think it's also something nice to be said about that kind of style of writing where you don't over-explain everything. It really gives the reader a chance to kind of fill in the gaps how they want. you know. And even like somebody like Jack Vance, who's known for having very, very florid language, I think he does a great job of that too in a weird way because like when you read the Dying Earth stories, you don't really know what a deodon totally looks like. Like his language isn't used to like overly describe everything you're seeing. And I think Saber Hagen does kind of a similar thing. Like he really leaves it up to us to kind of fill in those blanks.
2: Yeah. He doesn't over explain. That's for sure. Yeah. We don't
1: need to know the exact shade of coloring of their feathers and whether they're downy and fluffy or, Mm -hmm. you know, slick and shiny.
2: (laughs) It doesn't matter. Yeah. As soon as you decided that what they were like, though, now you had a very good imagery of what it was. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I like it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a, a lot of uh, psychological realism. I like, for example, after the first battle of the, um, when they take back the oasis, and um, there's a couple of funny, uh, one funny bit and one sort of dark bit just on facing pages. So this is page 138 and 139. Uh, so um, the wizard, uh, the sort of hedge wizard good guy who's left over, what's his name? Uh, mm-hmm. Low forward, right? Who's just, he's described as being a giant, but actually uh-huh. kind of clumsy uh, at the same time. <laughs> right, the big one, and he goes, "Oh, how was the fighting? Oh, very good. Oh, excellent. I will tell you how it's facing two of them, but I am come to remind you the time to pick up. Th- this time, the thunderstorm is yours to pick up." And then Thomas, grinning, thinking how he would torment Loaford by never asking him how he'd gotten his glorious <laughs> <win>. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> And on the facing page, Thomas was afraid. He feared the urgings and delights of power that he could feel stirring within himself, like the pangs of some glamorous sickness. You know, come to the dark side.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think Saberhagen does a really good job of kind of helping us see the kind of interior life of these characters. You know, also, shortly after Rolf has has, uh, killed the guard with the big rock and him and Lulford have run off to the camp, there's this one paragraph where it says, lying real and solid on the leaves beside him was the short sword that he had taken yesterday from the dead soldier. He saw again in his mind's eye, the thrown stone from his own hand, crunching the the soldier's teeth and bringing out blood. He put out a hand and gripped the captured weapon for a moment by the hilt. So it's like this great moment of just like this flash of the trauma of what he experienced yesterday. I don't know. I I, I find
2: I I found it all very effective. Very brief, but still potent.
1: So speaking of characters, I I agree with you, Hoy, that the characters are really nicely fleshed out. Is there a specific character that really spoke to any of you guys?
2: Do you know what I find interesting is a lot of them are fleshed out, but like uh, Muick, the martial arts guy that you mentioned, you don't really hardly get to know anything about this guy. Right. It's more like Thomas and Rolf and uh, those guys and some that Sarah, which was way too young for the way she was portrayed in the story, I thought, but
1: uh. (laughs) (laughs) also very Game of
2: Thrones because, yeah, she's
1: 14 and she's got a boyfriend who's older than Rolf.
0: Right, yeah, was 16 right I think we're off of somewhere. And then she is thrown very into medieval the harem you know? as a
2: special girl by the harem master right oh no Ekumon, you yeah. have to see this girl next yeah though that was kind of weird but uh what, so why don't we know more about Muick do you think we learn more about him in other books or what because he seems like this awesome badass fighter like the free the free guy's best fighter right right
0: right, right. And he's got yeah. that crazy hatchet <laughs> with the uh, basket hill, too.
1: <laughs> That's a good point, though. I am curious if, like, if Saberhagen is intentionally holding back on Miwik because he has more to reveal later, or if he just hasn't really kind of given him the same amount of attention he gave the other characters.
2: And we're kind of introduced to him in the Swamp mm-hmm. Peoples, in the Free Folks uh, camp, as this guy who's traveled all over and has has come from the West and says, you know, we can't you know, count on them, but there are people up there. Or something, you know. So he seems mm-hmm. to be this well-traveled guy mm-hmm. who knows and is bringing all the information to everybody.
0: Yeah, I guess there's always that room for the sort of mysterious mentor figure. And so I'm wondering if Miwik will, will continue to fill that role and expand on that role. And it definitely has got me interested in the next book, for sure.
2: Yeah, because we we learned a lot about Loford and Thomas and obviously Rolf. But that guy,
0: yeah, not very Boy, much. Did you have- yeah.
2: And I mean, his... I was going to say his description was even kind of interesting because he like talked about hairy legs, which I don't have that in here. But I just remember reading that. I was like, this is kind of a weird description for this, who is this guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny.
1: <laughs> and Hoy, did you have a character who really spoke to you?
0: Um, I'm going to have to say it was probably Ecumen, Uh yeah? the satrap, because, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's actually um, psychologically quite astute. Like he notices like, you know, when the whole gladiatorial match, he realizes it's some kind of setup. And even though it doesn't affect him directly, it means that there's like underlying tensions within his castle. And that now he's going to marry his daughter off to this other satrap. And suddenly she's going to be this locus of a power against him. And he has to get to the bottom of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that he just, you know, but that he doesn't suspect his, you know, right-hand wizard is still interesting. You know, Elsrud or Elzwood, Elzwood, Elzrood. Um, yeah. Elzlud. Elzlud. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, definitely. I, I, The one that I was the most drawn to is one we see very little, but I really dig uh, Ekamon's daughter, Charmian, Mm -hmm. Princess Charmian. Um, And particularly from there are like two sentences that really cracked me up. One is on page 15. It says, um, and he thought now that the knot of Charmian's golden hair would most likely be of little use to any man. For one, as utterly evil as the princess could hardly be moved by any charm to anything like love. Yep. And then, my favorite one was on page one o seven, where Ekamon is thinking about marrying off his daughter. And he says, Ekamon's chief sensation as he thought about his daughter's impending marriage was one of relief. Her dedication to petty malice was so strong that he felt her daughter her departure would rid the household of a whole vortex of minor intrigues.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> Not only is that just a really like fun character development, it's also just like a beautifully written sentence, too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Have
2: uh, you have you read any other books that follow this at all or no? Cause I started this is the one. only Saber Hagen I've read. Oh, cause I followed the next one after this. I started to read because it, it was the empire of the East and mine that I had on my Kindle and uh, she is involved in that as well. So
0: nice. There we go. There we go. Yeah. It's just, you know, that definitely, this has that, you know, it comes to a satisfying ending, but definitely leaves enough threads to keep, to get, uh, to be pulled. Um, oh that, yeah, that, for sure. You know, it is interesting that it had a weird sort of publication history because I guess the first two books were published by Ace and then the third book was published by Daw and then they put Empire of the East back into Ace. Oh. And so I, I'm not really sure what was the um, backstory back behind that. Maybe Ace initially didn't sell as well as it should have, but I don't know what, what goes on there. Um, interesting, yeah. Um, and again, I will be actually, actually pretty interested provided the next two books hold up that to revisit the swords books to see how that you know all fits together.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a little bummed that we're not going to be returning to this series again until episode 85. We've got a ways to go before we get back into the second book in this series.
0: Uh, but I am um, looking forward to continuing on. We'll have to get the uh, Hobbes report early on and then we'll just, uh, you yeah. know. All right, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> there you go. So um, any other particular things that stood out in terms of either story structure or scenes? Again, for me, the scene that really stood out was Thomas's attempting to evade the patrols in the desert. I thought that was really well done.
1: I really liked Rolf and his first encounter with the elephant. mm -hmm. Um, I feel like sometimes the, when when you have smart characters interacting with ancient technology, especially if it's ancient, ancient technology, that is something that we can have a basic grasp of today. I feel like sometimes that kind of interaction can come off as very hokey. Um, like trying to watch like a primitive person figure out how to use a gun in a story. Sometimes I roll my eyes at the way that that stuff is done. Uh, But I felt like this was done really, really well. And I really, especially thought it was fun when he gets into the elephant and he sees the gas masks that are hanging on the wall and he st- sees them and thinks of them as like elephant masks. Cause they've got like this trunk nice. on them as well. And it all just kind of like ties into this idea that like this giant battle machine is like the elephant that he's been thinking of and that has people have been praying for.
2: Yeah. I thought that was cool. Uh, one of my favorite scenes was actually kind of early. Like when Loford summoned the elemental in the swamp for them to get away. And you kind of have this, And you don't even really, he doesn't talk much about it, but you get this image of this giant swamp thing just blasting all of Ekman's dudes on the island until, you know, the lizards catch him. It just seemed kind of cool. And then, uh oh, it's done with them. Now it's coming after us kind of thing. I just thought that was a a cool idea. Cause you see, this is definitely something like DCC or MCC, that whole thing with the technology. You definitely think of like a gamma world idea Mm -hmm. of someone working with. And then, now you think about, okay, this is very DCC where this type of monster can come after us after it's been summoned. You know, I thought that was pretty cool. Right, I guess right, I'm yeah. jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead, aren't right.
1: I? Well, you're not. I think that's a great, this is a, a great segue into the gaming side of this. And one of the things that I think is maybe an interesting place to start with discussing the gaming conversation is that Gygax, when he wrote out the Appendix N, listed under Fred Saberhagen, the Changeling Earth, comma, at all. So he's only specifically recommending the third book in this series um, and not explicitly the first two books in the series. But that said, while you were reading it, did you feel like this book was kind of a, a – that there was a clear through line between this book and early iterations of D&D?
0: Oh, yeah, most definitely, yeah.
2: Um, Uh, yeah, especially like in the gamma world or the metamorphosis alpha feeling where, you know, you got mm -hmm. these primitive people who are finding, you know, technology, which is, you know, pretty common in, um, early AD and D anyway. I mean, you don't see that much about it probably in previous editions until that, but,
0: and even people have talked about, I mean, maybe this is sort of post-hoc rationalization, but people have talked about the world of Greyhawk as essentially being a post-apocalyptic world, right? That's sort of mm-hmm. come back because it's lost sways of, you know, unoccupied, you know, territory that should have higher population. You know, there's of course expedition to the barrier peaks. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yes. Where they discovered the, you know, the spaceship. So there's, there was a, I like that again, we've talked about this over and over again in the earlier episodes, that there was not a hard div- uh, dividing line between fantasy and science fiction as such. Um, and you know, now it's and the, certainly
1: not in Gygax's vision of what D&D was going to be. Right.
0: And in the fiction in, of that time too. And then it's become a much more distinct categories now. Um, so, yeah. So.
2: yeah. And, and this book definitely, I would say, you know, explicitly says that. You know, I de- totally because it is post-apocalyptic. It's far in the future and they are refinding uh, technology as its own magic. So I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. It and definitely made me want to do it a little more actually kind yeah. of in some ways. <laughs> right.
1: and one thing that I found is not necessarily tied into the technology part of it, but definitely into the kind of the D and D part of it is the, the the way that elementals were used in this novel, I thought were really cool, you know, because elementals have been there since the first, since the very beginning of, of OD and D. And there were like three moments where elementals come into play. Like there's one where we actually like raise an elemental, in the swamps, like right out of the water, this like giant swamp elemental rises up and protects them. Uh, But then there's that moment where they're in the desert and they're trying to, and and they're like, why don't we summon an elemental? And the dude's like, yeah, we're doing this at night. And a desert elemental, the power that the desert elemental has is like the fury of the heat and the sand. And like, so really a desert elemental is only really helpful during the day. And then in the final battle, they're talking about how they can't really raise an elemental because like it's all... Um, stone castle floor or like the crushed earth of the of the courtyard and you can't really bring forth an elemental from that Mm -hmm. and i thought that was a really cool evocative way of looking at elementals instead of like just casting some elemental and something appears you're responding more to the actual environment that you're in at that moment Mm
2: -hmm. which adds a lot of depth to any game for sure right right, Right? right. totally yeah
0: i I thought a lot of I thought a lot of elements also sort of echoed play like, oh, um, you know, a lot of times when we play, especially early versions of d and a lot of it is about figuring things out and exploring, figuring out the puzzles. Like, oh, now I sort of understand how this artifact works. If I hand the Thunderstone to somebody else, that will cause the rain to start falling, right? And, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> what do
2: you think about the Thunderstone? That seems like a bizarre.
0: Yeah. It's, the, it's... the
2: Freedom Stone and the Thunderstone to me are like kind of weird in conjunction when you think about, you know, the fire extinguisher and you know the, the <laughs> yeah, elephant, yeah. Right. you know. I mean the the and then and then you see the magic that the wizards do. The right. thunderstone and the freedom stone just don't. They almost seem like something even higher technology or something right. to me somehow. And I, had, right. what did you guys think about that?
0: I mean, they're definitely artifacts of some sort in the in the D D sense of yeah. the word, as opposed to your run of the mill magic item. But it's not even clear whether those are, as you say, whether they're a technological. Those two, two uh, objects are never explicitly. You're never explicitly told that they're either technological or magical, right? Whereas everything else is kind of clear, right? Unless I'm missing something or forgot something there. I,
1: yeah, I believe, I, 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 would, I would disagree with that. I believe that there was a moment where um, oh, I think Thomas, Thomas.
0: Yeah. Gets oh, the oh, ro- yeah, gets yeah. the
1: stone in his hand and he can sense the great power that's emanating from it, yeah. which is not something they get from technology. That's
0: true, that's true. And sense think- <laughs> senses the same thing later on, you're right. What, yeah.
2: What I thought was interesting is the way that it ha- they each have their own little saying about them. It reminds me of the book of swords sayings about the different swords kind of describing what their powers are. So you're mm-hmm. kind of seeing how he wrote about that even in this in the Changing Earth books or whatever. So I think mm-hmm. that's kind of like maybe a foreword or foreshadowing to what you're going to see when you get into some other artifact level magic.
0: Right, right.
1: so now, the prisoner's stone is a really pretty wild magic item. You get you <laughs> get this rock in your hand, and any doors that are holding you in open, anybody who's trying to grab you is going to miss you. and you can you can really evade anything. But also, there's some serious drawbacks because also, since you can't be imprisoned, you can't be inside of a locked door. All right. those doors will just be open as well. And also, there's this very cool thing that they only mentioned briefly, but he keeps trying to grab a sword to protect himself, but he keeps dropping it. So even though so also while you're carrying it, you, it seems like you can't even keep objects that will protect you, like you can't be battling when, you're, when you've got the, the, the stone of freedom. Mm-hmm. So it's got a really cool drawback component, but it's also super powerful. Would right. you guys let an object like the prisoner's stone into your campaign world?
0: I think in DCC that would be no problem whatsoever because that's like the the epitome of DCC is having a magic item that's completely two faced, right? <laughs> you know, it seems like a, it seems like a, it seems like a damn bishop item, right? It's like just useful enough that you want to yes. hold on to it, but like but then it will always just backfire at the most inopportune moment. <laughs> what
2: what kind of crazy mind makes these two stones? I mean, what 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 guy is sitting around with his Alembics and, you know, his hookah with, who knows, smoking purple mushrooms, and he's like, oh, yeah, I know what I need to make now. <laughs> right. He's going to make this thing that you pass back and forth and creates a thunder. What is going on? To me, that's crazy. <laughs> Would I use them in my game? I don't know. I'm kind of like low, gritty more, but... This, I mean, anyone who had these, it would take, it would be pretty fun for them to try and figure them out. If you're going right. to do it the old school way, <laughs> you're right, going to get right. a lot of lightning bolts. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you're going to let a really powerful magic item like this into your game, make sure it has really cool drawbacks like that, and then just like say yes to it as right. the fucking dungeon right. master, yeah. like, l- like let them dig their own graves with right. it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> this
2: rock will never catch us. I'm going to keep it in my keep. Okay, awesome. All
0: right. right. Well, I, I, and I like because of this eye object, you know, the thunderstone that then it created a little pocket society right and so it was like a real thing that the society was centered around as opposed to just like oh you know a power tool that you have in your garage that you pull out when you need it right yeah that's so, that's hmm.
2: actually an that talk about guygaxian sort of naturalism right that's almost right. exactly what he's like oh what would this stone bring up uh, do you think yeah. he made up the two stones oasis first or did he make up the the items and then said, Oh, I wonder if there could be a society around, you know, that's a pretty cool <laughs> idea. And I love doing right. that with my own magical items or things in games
0: for sure. Right. Right. Um, you know, and, and the fact that the, so far we haven't seen, I mean, we've seen again, a mixture of technology and magic, but it's not like completely routine. There's, there's definitely no plus one sword in this book. Right. So that's, that's oh, absolutely.
1: <laughs> now, speaking of the scene where um, Ekamon and El hold the stone in their hand and sense its power, It seems like these wizards seem to have kind of an automatic detect magic without having to cast a spell detect magic. And in your mind, in kind of the way you view your gaming, should detect magic be a spell or should a wizard just be able to sense when powerful magic is imbued in an object?
2: Uh, I probably, in the game that I am writing, it's just something all mages can do, okay? Depending on how powerful they are, because there's different levels of magery. Like if you're just a hedge wizard who's just you know, just learning it or something, maybe you wouldn't know that because you're like a light witch or something. But if you're like an adept or something, then perhaps you would have that. Uh, But even in my regular games, a lot of times if like you, if your group goes into uh, this powerful shrine that is, they've been, you know, killing, sacrificing things and gaining power, I'll usually let almost anyone notice that like the hair on the back of your neck will stand out. And then if you're a cleric or something, I may even say, yeah, you know, you don't notice the reverence of this, but there is this sort of ominous, ominous underlying power that you can feel mm-hmm. that resonates, you know, in your very bones or something. So a lot of times, I usually that feels
1: holy or blasphemous. Yeah, or exactly. Whatever you know, the,
2: you can smell sulfur, you know, from the necro nether regions and not those nether regions, Jeff.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can smell the sulfur from your nether regions from here, Hobbs. Get in the shower. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh. I'm actually pretty close to that take, um, but I think that if you want to learn anything explicitly, that's where the spell comes in. So if you're like, oh, that's fair," you know, I get this vibe. Um, for example, um, again, it was in um, Creeping Beauties of the Wood, the, the Goblin Knight's armor that Daniel Bishop created, and you put it on, but you lose a point of luck um, if you're wearing it because it doesn't really belong. So I just said anyone who wears it explicitly understands it doesn't really belong to them right you know and you always get that feeling that you're not supposed to really be wearing it but then i don't tell them that there's a point (laughs) of luck until it actually comes into play you know Um, actually you failed that luck roll (laughs) (laughs) right right. um you know because it's still a very useful item otherwise or but in any case those kind of things i definitely have done that with clerics yeah this place does not feel give you good vibes but you don't know if explicitly if it's just bad power uh, you know uh unholy power or if it's just your sort of subconscious sort of like picking up on like you know the blood stains over here and you know the 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 sooty smoky smell or something like that. And so that's kind of yeah. how I like to play it. All right. Until unless you know they're looking for an explicit result.
2: So I have a related question for you, Jeff. Yes, please. What about the elephant? Do you allow the elephant in your game?
1: Oh. Um the elephant that that is a that's probably the most powerful object here no doubt. Um I guess it would depend on the kind of game I was running and um, it probably doesn't fit the kind of game I'm currently running. Cause I feel like the elephant is more interesting. If you're dealing with a campaign that's got armies at work, if you're potentially dealing with um, armies in conflict, the elephant, would I allow that? Oh, heck yeah. That would be really, really cool. But I tend to be less, less interested in and drawn toward kind of,
0: armies battling one another what about you hoy um i think um i would it would have to be you know building to a crescendo or climax or at least of that section of the campaign um so um they might discover it but then it might take them a long time to figure out how to activate it and to make it you know and even in this story they don't get the full use of the elephant they're able to drive it around right but they're not you know weapons don't work yeah the gm nerfed Uh, it yeah. So, <laughs> he said <laughs> like, I'm going to put this tank
2: in and then it's like, oh shit, this will be too powerful. So, oh, I'm going to take all the <laughs> weapons away. That
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's like a little spurt of fire that comes out of one of them like that, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but but yeah, no, I think that um, you know, it, it has to build to a section of the campaign. And it would be that quest and that artifact. And and this this story is explicitly structured as a as a quest, right? You know, they know of the elephant. Yeah, it's and got to go like, find it.
2: Yeah, yeah, what the heck it what do you guys we haven't even mentioned Ardna yet. What does that have to do with anything?
0: Right? Uh,
1: yeah, and so, the tie into Hindu mythology is especially interesting,
0: yeah. all right, right. the The juggernaut and uh, Shiva, and yeah, definitely yeah.
1: yeah, all of that i that those kinds of thoughts I feel like I have kind of temporarily shelved okay. because I feel like, I'm interested in knowing more. And I feel like Saberhagen is intentionally not giving us more in this first book. And I'm trusting that as we go to the second and third books, that stuff will be kind of more delineated for us. But right now I'm like, okay, I I'm interested, but I don't have enough information at the moment to know what's really up with us.
2: And right. it was kind of done what in a way are- that it's okay. I thought. So. Right.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, what are these supernatural powers? We clearly came from, a universe that um something happened in our future this tank is not like an m1 right it's an atomic tank right but it still has english language you know our mm-hmm. uh, you know us army detail stenciled on the side and in the control so it was in our sort of foreseeable future but now this story is happening in our far far future and clearly the ground rules of this this world have changed right it's not there's now magic,
2: right? <laughs> yeah.
0: So mm-hmm. right. what happened? So what happened? Um, some kind of phase change. So that's really interesting. I, yeah, and as you say, Jeff, it's interesting to see where he's going to go with it. I, again, I know Saber Hagen tends to be um, relatively straightforward in his prose. So I think this is more of a pacing issue than being deliberately obscure the way that some mm-hmm. writers tend to be. So I think, yeah, um, you know, I will leave some trust, but if the third book, you know, doesn't pan out, I'm going to flip the table, you know? <laughs> <laughs> No,
1: I've got a question for you guys. I I think we would all agree that it is easier to take a hammer to a piece of electronics than it would be to fix a piece of electronics, right? We all agree on that. Um, so I think about healing magic and harming magic. And it seems like it would be really a lot harder to use magic to heal somebody than it would to use magic to cause somebody great harm. And in this story, there's that moment where Elslude uh, looks at... Um, looks at somebody, I forget who it is, one of the one of the gu- guards who's talking and just like basically kills him on the spot. He just starts like spitting up foam and then dies. And in that moment, I'm like, gosh, it seems like it would be so easy to use magic to just like scramble up somebody's innards and then cause them to kind of die on the spot. So why is it that in D&D, you know, cure spells are available for first level characters, but like power word kill and things like that aren't available until a ninth level spell? I have an answer. Do you want to go where you want
2: me to? Uh, go ahead, Jason. I would actually say that the, those magic is there because at, right along with cure light wound is cause light wounds. And that's going to kill most normal people almost instantly, right? The D8, that's a lot. So they usually have a D4 in most games. Uh, and then you also have magic missile, which a D4 is going to hit all, all every time and kill a lot of times, especially in DCC. Um so I don't think that it really has, is juxtaposed as much as you're portraying just because of that. Um, and also, I mean, it's, you know, nerfing the game, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They don't want it so you can just immediately kill their big powerful wizard. Yeah, exactly.
2: Right, so, right. and I mean, and that's kind of what hit points is supposed to emulate, you know, it's all abstract, right? So sometimes for a magic user to be able to withstand a magic missile at higher levels is because he's better at it. You know, he has some resiliency just in just like all as all classes would go. Ahead.
1: Sure. Right, or it just right. represents how much the DM doesn't want you to kill him. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: well, we're not going to talk
2: about it like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the plot, plot armor, I guess it's, it's plot armor without being completely arbitrary. Yeah. Right. I think it is, is, I think the goal and, you know, I've sort of come, I'm sort of, I'm not 100% with Tim Kask's definition of hit points as being the ability to avoid the killing blow, but I think there's a use for it, you know, because a lot of people are like, oh, well, you don't get four times, you know, more, you know, you don't get, you can't get stabbed four times more when you're, you know, a more experienced soldier, right? Exactly. Uh, um, so now I have 20
1: arrows in you instead of one.
0: Yeah, right, right. Um, but there, always the problem is obviously when you have like wounds that have follow-up effects like with poison and stuff like that. Well, you know, so then I said, yeah, you got, you know, even though it did eight points of damage, you got nicked, but just enough for the poison to get in your bloodstream. And now make your saving throw versus poison, right? Um, so, it's always a you have to sort of work with it narratively. You can't just do purely mechanically, I think is the, is the answer to that. So, if you yeah. think
2: about it, and if that's the way that uh, it is, that it's just like getting beat up and stretched and, you know, just small wounds, then it almost makes more sense for the 5e method of being able to have short rests to heal up, isn't
0: it? Even DCC now, right? With DCC Lankmar, right? You, have, you can spend the luck point. In the middle of the battle to sort of do that, you know, in, in the absence of explicit, you know, a, a, an explicit healing mm-hmm. class because they get rid of clerics in in um, DCC Lankmar. So, yeah, I think there, there is and I think there's a way of doing it. But I think that the problem with a lot of the short rests or at least how it's done, the framework that people have for it is like the video game respawn rather than yeah. giving it a narrative description of like, oh. You reel back, but then you take a deep breath, and your, your your chi, you know, gets you back into the battle or something like that. So,
1: or you bind your wounds, and you bathe in the river, and you have a hearty stew, and suddenly you're feeling invigorated and whatever. Right, right, yeah, right. definitely.
0: You know, and I guess at least with Five E, I mean, I don't play it regularly, but I know you can sort of dial that up and down, so you can define a short rest as being you know, fifteen minutes, overnight, whatever it is that you need to make it fit your sort of uh, story style. GameStop. Yeah, it's kind of
2: cool. It's basically just going back to the idea of using the narrative to make the game mechanics make sense, and uh, yeah, and that's I think that's what it is uh, it's cool with any game system really. So,
1: so another thing that I thought was really kind of cool was uh, Zarf's familiar, mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> the Toad. Yeah.
1: Uh, so yeah, the Toad, and I love this one moment, and this felt very DCC to me, where we find Zarf's roasted body after he's been struck by lightning, and we look at the dead body of the familiar. And it says the dead thing at his shoulder was no longer a toad, but a terrible, but an odd, terrible little creature, like a bearded
2: human baby. <laughs> <laughs> <And> wh- <laughs> what is- yeah, I remember reading that at the time. I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Why well, add that? But that's interesting. Maybe it's more foreshadowing. Yeah. Right? And I don't know. I yeah. liked it, though. <laughs> what. Well- Totally.
1: Like wizards familiars are not true and proper animals. It's not like you like befriended a cute little sparrow and like, you know, imbued it with a little bit of your essence. Like, no, this is some like hell creature that you brought forth and given some kind of like a rudimentary earth-like form so that people aren't freaked out about the bearded baby on your shoulder.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He uses that familiar in a couple different places. Interestingly, like even the toad was like, you know, reluctant to do anything during the uh interrogation of ardna or the old one it's just like oh now it's hopping around like it normally does when he's you know torturing people i just thought it was uh he uses the the toad fairly well way better than i do with my characters familiars because normally i like them just forget about them unless it's
1: (laughs) unless they want it (laughs) yeah and it's a good reminder to like make them interesting because i also thought that liber did a great job with that In was that was that thieves in the house hoy with um, with Harist, Harist, Milo,
0: oh right, right, right. I think it was these in the house, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So like we've got this like wizard who's got this like little weird rat familiar, but then we find out later that actually the rat familiar is the <laughs> is the wizard. Yeah, right. <laughs>
2: yeah that's great. Right. You
0: know, and I guess it's kind of like uh, the Brown Jenkins too in Dreams in the Witch House. You know, oh like yeah. The, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. I guess you know it's always tough being a game master to sort of keep track of these things, and I, I sometimes I just like to do a little cheat sheet. Of just literally like a one sentence description of each of my each of the player characters that's in the game it's like, oh, you know, so and so fighter has magic sword, you know, wizard, blah 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 has uh, you know, just like a little thing that's right there on right next to my, you know, screen or my binder, just so I remember who I'm dealing with, you know. And um, you know, we can't keep track of everything, it's like being in air traffic control, yeah. right? But if if it's totally. an opportune moment to pull that kind of stuff out, it's always it's always fun.
1: Yeah,
2: totally uh, agree.
1: Well, this seems like this is kind of a good time to start kind of wrapping this up a little bit, but um, I have a question, uh, Mr. Hobbs. Is there a thing that you're really uh, itching to talk about before we wrap this up?
2: So you guys uh, I've noticed in the past that you mentioned like how you felt about this old literature in modern uh, politically correct times of how it should be done. How did you feel about, I've thought that uh, like, you know, Loford's wife, Manka, was a pretty powerful female character. We didn't see her very much, and obviously mm-hmm. Sarah was, but then she kind of got—I don't know—nerfed back a little bit when she got brought into the keep. But it, all in all, what did you guys think about that?
1: Overall, I felt like the the depiction of women was was all was all right. They 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 they, they were some of them were pretty powerful, and there's one in particular Olante. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. the woman from the Oasis, she was pretty badass, and I know that the women of the Oasis were also going off and fighting with the men. Um, there was one, where is that? I think it's page 98 through 99. I have a little note here. Um, and like, there are some things that I, I, this is a very minor quibble, but, um, she says at one point, a girl can search just as well as a man. And for me, I'm like, if I were writing that in 2018, I would have it say a woman can search just as well as a man, not a girl, <laughs> but whatever. I'm not going to like get so hung up on something like that. But in 2018, 2019, that should probably say a man can search just as well as a woman can search just as well as a man. Because the idea that like girl is how we're describing women, it's, it's kind of infant infantilizing women where like men can be men, but women are just girls. I, I'm still not huge into that, but overall, I didn't feel like there's anything overly super offensive about any of it. Nah. And kind of the the big enemy being the East and using uh, cassette traps. That's like a that's like a Middle Eastern title, right? That's the
0: uh, Persian, yeah, the Persian war uh, sort of governors and warlords, you know. So yeah, so the, it the does Greece. seem
1: to kind of play more into like. You know, ethnic people from the east are dangerous and scary and mysterious, um, and their ways are going to ruin and destroy ours. Um, there's definitely kind of that, like white man's fear of the invasion of the other. That's also kind of going on on some kind of sub level. Um, but again, like given some of the, a lot of the stuff we've read, I don't think it's too bad in this one.
0: All right. Yeah. I'm not particularly troubled by that. And again, I think mentioning the fact that the broken lands people are almost analogs for the Viet Cong sort of makes it interesting. He's a little bit more subtle than you would think in that regard. Um, there is one thing that's pretty common throughout a lot of our appendix and fiction though, is the, um, and I think it fits in the story. It's logical, but there's always the presence of potentiality of rape, right? Um, Mm -hmm. clearly Rolf's parents probably mother was probably raped. We don't know what happened to his sister. She's gone. Um, Sarah will be put in the harem. Um, Olansa—it's not clear if she was raped or she was threatened with rape by the occupying soldiers of the um, the oasis. Yeah. Um, Right. So, um, and I think it's it's plausible in the context of the story. So I don't think it's a cheap shot necessarily, but I do think that if it's something that you don't want to read about, you know, it's here, right, (laughs) right in the story. Yeah. So
1: the use of sexual violence as a form of horror. I think can work in some contexts. I think it works very well in the in the Game of Thrones books, for example, um, and I also think it's very realistic in a in a dark kind of gritty exploration of human nature because rape is also something that men do, and they especially did it quite a bit in like Viking raids and in Mongol raids. People were raping and murdering left and right, so it's it is realistic. In gaming, it's not something that I'm, I'm really interested in leaning into in any way at all, but in fiction, it doesn't bother me. If it's done, if it's done in a realistic, gritty way,
2: if it's given the merit that it requires, right?
0: Yeah. Right. What are some of the things or attitudes that might've jumped out at you that you were either think that were very much of their time or that maybe you weren't expecting Jason in terms of looking at the book? <laughs>
2: Oh, that's an interesting. I, the first thing that I noticed really was when he said Sarah was 14 and then she became like his love interest in this interest throughout, you know, uh, but I didn't think it was terrible. Um, I think some of the, like, it might've been interesting to learn more about, you know, Manka, this person who's been helping her husband through uh, this powerful wizard. Mm. Um, but in general, I mean, for me, it was, I was I was okay. It was better than a lot of them. You know, it's not as bad as many other ones. That's for yeah. sure. So- I thought, I mean, the owl people, why was the woman called Feathertip, but the dude had this weird name, Stryjeep? You ever, well, I
1: don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> Strygeep kept, isn't a pretty name. <laughs>
2: I kept I kept feeling like if I read it backwards, then it would mean something. Because I thought that was cool that Ekumon immediate was like, oh, it was so easy to notice that Ardna and Ekumon were backwards when he, when the old one did the that little, you know, his curse or whatever. I was like, I didn't notice that. <laughs> well, why is this guy telling me? And they're making me feel dumb that I didn't notice.
1: <laughs> it's Saberhagen's way of telling us that Ekamon is smarter than us. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: All right, that's awesome. Well, um, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. You've been an awesome guest.
0: Yes. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure talking to you. Well,
2: thanks. I was pretty intimidated by most of the other guests I listened to because uh, they really seem to know a lot. And I don't know that much, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I mean, it's honestly really about our responses to this that I think is really what's interesting. And, and um, you know, we've had some examples of much younger guests recently, and it's really fascinating to see what. Um, you know, younger than our gaming generation, what they bring to the table in terms of their responses and reactions. So I think um, anyone who's just genuinely engaged is the kind of person we want on the show. Agreed. So,
2: yeah, it's a great show. Oh, thank you. So thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: So our next two episodes, episode 40 will be on Lynn Carter's, the warrior of world's end. And episode 41 will be on de Camp's the goblin tower.
0: Very cool. If you want to uh, find us, you can look at us at appendixnbookclub.com. You can reach out to us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or on Twitter at at appendix underscore n. Uh, If you enjoy our our show, please uh, rate us on iTunes or your podcast or choice. It helps people find us. And Hobbs, how can people find you?
2: You can find me on iTunes at, at my podcast, Hobbs and Friends, or Random Screed, as you mentioned. And I have a email, Hobbs at Hobbs and Friends. And I have Twitter at OSRN Hobbs.
0: Very good. Bombard him with queries, people. <laughs> Do it. Do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being on. It's been a great show. Thanks, guys. See you in the stacks. Read on.
2: Abby is closed.